Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Samir, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up? I would have to say Cadbury's. Like, again, that comes top of my mind. Now, when I analyze it in hindsight, it's about happiness. It's about joy. And it's not just Cadbury's. It's Cadbury's Dairy Milk. Obviously, the taste, the texture, the way it melts in the mouth. And in in those days in India, you had one chocolate bar and it was Cadbury's and it was Dairy Milk. But what what is amazing is that even my kids now, they're 11 and 16 and have the choice of a million brands. When I go to London, because you don't get it in Singapore, when I go to London or India, they will always say, my son especially, get me the Cadbury's Dairy Milk. Because I think... That brand and that product has cracked that sweet spot of everyday joy. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Samir Singh, the Chief Marketing Officer of Unilever Personal Care, a $13 billion business with famous brands such as Dove, Axe Links, Lifebuoy, Rexona Shore, and Pepsodent. Headquartered in London, Unilever is one of the largest and most influential multinational consumer goods companies with sales of about $60 billion U.S. dollars. My guest Samir has been at Unilever for 25 years and was appointed global CMO of personal care about 10 months ago. Samir grew up in a small town in India, started with Unilever as an area sales manager, and from there moved into marketing and flourished in a variety of brand assignments. Samir now lives in Singapore with his wife and two children. This is my conversation with a CMO with a clear and compelling personal purpose. Here's Samir Singh. Samir, welcome to the CMO podcast, finally. You know, just as I was finishing my notes for this discussion, my newsfeed popped in. I saw it up on the right-hand corner of my screen to say Unilever has a new CEO, Heinz <laughs> Schumacher. So I said, oh, well, well, we should start on that. I mean, I've been through many CEO changes. In fact, I came into my role as P&G CMO after a CEO change. And mm. they are always times of great hope and great curiosity. So I would like you to start with what's your greatest hope 
for your new CEO and your company. Let's just start there. I think my uh, greatest hope is that he will continue us on this journey of uh, uh, of sustainable living, which is uh, now starting to give great results. Uh, we've had a great year. Uh, we've had a very effective compass reorganization, and I think that is really starting to work. Uh, and of course, that sustainably he will lift our performance to a new level. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for great things. So you talked about the compass reorg. I've been through a lot of those as well. Some yes. went well, some did not. <laughs> so, uh, and we could have a whole podcast about that, but what is it about this reorg that is working so well so far? I think the early signs are indeed good. Uh, I think there is, uh, uh, this whole sort of reorganization is based on having divisions with uh, independent PNLs with end-to-end responsibility. And I think that just is helping decision-making become much, much faster in responding to consumer and customer needs. And of course, it's a process of adjustment, uh, uh, you know, because people's jobs change, etc. Mm-hmm. But uh, about six months in, uh, I'm getting a good feeling about it. Super. Well, as you know, and as we were chatting before this recording started, I hail from P&G and I yes. did battle with many Unilever brands over <laughs> the course of my long career at P&G. So I'd like to I'd like you to reflect a bit. You've been at the company 25 years. I was also at P&G 25 years. How do you think over the course of your career the nature of that rivalry has changed? Ah, that's an interesting question. Uh and I think I've also had the pleasure to do battle uh, with P&G, not in all my jobs. Uh, I haven't really thought about how is the nature of it uh, changed, I think. uh, But I have a feeling marketing as a whole, uh, I'm a glass half full guy, as you will discover. And uh, and I feel marketing as a whole has become uh, more strategic, more purpose oriented, more based on sort of essential truths. Uh, and I think there used to be in the early days from Unilever and PNG and many others sort of lots of small tactical moves and, uh, you know, competitive adverts and stuff like that. Uh, now I think it is more fundamental sort of based on genuine consumer insights and making big moves on brands. Uh, so in a way it is. Kind of the fight is fairer, but it's also more difficult. Uh, but essentially, I think that sort of healthy rivalry, which pushes uh, uh, people to new heights and into new directions, I think that is still there. And it's a competitor that I obviously greatly respect. Well, I have to follow up on that one. I, 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 feel, I feel over my career, and this is a cliche perhaps, but Unilever definitely made us better. I mean, we both both mm. Unilever and PNG have many more competitors now. I think the markets have fragmented a lot over the yeah. last two decades. But I do remember when the whole Dove journey started, and we were relatively early in our purpose journey, and that one really shook us up in a positive way. Yeah, we really yeah. admired it. It kept evolving. It kept setting yeah. new standards. So for us, that was a beacon externally for our journey. Uh, a, yeah. a brand inside PNG at that time that was a beacon was Pampers. I'd be interested in your perspective, Samir. What about PNG has influenced you as a competitor of them for many years? I think many things, but uh, 
couple of things that come top of my mind are uh, I think this this sort of emphasis on those moments of truth. I think that was uh, mm-hmm. you know it's so obvious in hindsight, which is how they describe an insight, right? That it really then impacts your work deeply. And I think that first moment of truth at retail, uh, and I don't think in my career till then I had looked at it uh, uh, with quite that amount of sort of criticality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think this whole emphasis on product superiority and sort of seeing it uh, manifest in very practical ways in a consumer's life. Uh, I think those were sort of two top of mind things that really influenced me. You are certainly one of the most awarded CMOs I've hosted on this show. <laughs> you have multiple FEs, multiple can lines. In fact, last time we saw each other was at Can a few years ago. Yes. You were personal care marketer of the year in India, and it goes on and on. I'd like you to share with us, what is it about how you lead and how you work with teams that has resulted in such admiration from your colleagues? Because all of these awards are judged based on the data by our colleagues in this marvelous large industry. I know you hate talking about things like this, (laughs) but what is it about you and how you lead that has attracted such admiration? Now, Jim, look, you are being very kind. Uh, My list of awards is like a very short one uh, uh, compared to yours and, and many others. So, and, and I think like you know very well, uh, all these awards and recognitions are sort of a very inadequate way to measure uh, the contribution uh, uh, that a marketeer makes. I think in my own little way, uh, I think the one thing that I get very uh, passionate about is, and, and you know, it's a hot topic uh, uh, and I think it's probably the essence of my leadership over the last uh, sort of 15, 20 years that I've been leading in marketing is this whole thing of uh, how to embed purpose into brands in a way that makes brands grow, but also in a way that teams extract joy out of that. And uh, And I think the word purpose has been much abused and misunderstood mm-hmm. because I think somehow it has come to stand for purpose with a big P, uh, you know, saving the world, saving children, saving lives, saving women. But what uh, to me is the essence of marketing and of all great brands and which has informed my career is like purpose with a small P. Because I think there is, you know, whether you are handling one of P&G's great brands or Unilever's, there is something about uh, satisfying a consumer's need day after day in a way that gives her or him joy that I think adds up to something bigger. And I think that for me is a is a much bigger responsibility because uh, it's a joy that the consumer can't even articulate. She will never actually talk about it. But, uh, you know, when you, uh, when Lifeboy sort of helps prevent her children fall ill a little less often or Dove in its way addresses sort of the problems of beauty anxiety. You're, you know, it's like that movie Inside Out, which said that you can't really have joy until you have sorrow. And I think we are those people who kind of understand those little sorrows and bring those little joys. And over time, it adds up to something big, which people love to talk about, which is the purpose with the big P. And that's really the essence of the brands we handle. And why I love working for FMCG marketing, because the way you work is such a reflection on daily life and the rhythms of daily life, you know, which 
I don't think a banker or a lawyer yeah. or even a doctor will ever, or maybe a doctor will. But, uh, uh, and I think that for me, that opportunity to get that over the last 25 years, over many, many different kinds of brands. And yeah, sometimes that work gets recognized. But most of the time, as you know, a lot of it happens on the core brands, results in a lot of growth, uh, a lot of failures, a lot of ads which go wrong and that the world never hears about. Yeah. I love how you describe purpose with a small p. Uh, I often say to people, you know, it's about improving the business and it's about making a deeper, larger, more meaningful impact in the lives of people that can make them. It might be making them laugh, making them yeah. appreciate, making them cry, exactly. making them helping them do a task more quickly. So but we somehow and I still we, we've been at this for a long time. I still run into leaders, very senior leaders, including people who are on the stage at the ANA and at Cannes and at the WFA, mm. who equate purpose with with social justice yes. or social impact. Of yeah. course, that can come out of a purpose. That exactly. can emanate from a purpose, but it is not the purpose. So, Samir, what can we do to, to clear this up? Because it is <laughs> still a confused concept. No, it is. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Like, uh, you know, I run short of the fingers on both my hands if I tell you the number of senior leaders who still think that that's what purpose is. And, and the fact that it can be imposed on top of a brand. And, you know, you I love that you said that purpose is also about making people laugh. And, and, and you know, uh, I want to illustrate through the example of Axe, which is about uh, wit and humor. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's about making a, a guy look, a young guy look and feel attractive. And to me, that's its little purpose. And who is to say that that purpose is not as noble as, you know, saving children's lives that, that Life Boy does? I think, I think they're, they're almost the same because, you know, uh, giving someone confidence every day in that little way. And I think it's when you try and impose that sort of big P purpose that you talked about artificially, which, you know, for a brief time, we tried to do on Axe. Mm -hmm. And we said it's about toxic masculinity and fighting toxic masculinity and fighting male bullying. And they were all very worthy causes. But, you know, the consumer was wondering, hey, what has that got to do with yeah. the like, iconic black can and the fragrance I use? And I think returning that brand back to that sort of trifecta of fragrance uh, humor, uh, and attraction, uh, has resulted in great things that people still ask me, Hey, but okay. So you're not doing purpose on X. And my question is, no, we are now doing the true purpose of X, uh, which is attraction. Yeah. And that for me is good enough. I don't want to ladder it higher. Like I can't tell you the number of marketing blunders that I have seen when people in the name of sophisticated marketing keep laddering things higher. Like one of the biggest things I did on Lifepoy when I came was to, because Lifepoy had suddenly become a brand, which was not just about sort of kids illness, but about healthy kids and letting them play outside. And those are all very worthy things. And those ads were loved by consumers, but no one got and bought Lifepoy as a result because no one got germ protection. Mm -hmm. Because the fact is that healthy kids is a concept that literally hundreds of thousands of brands and entities say, but preventing illness is a concept that almost no one talks about. And that's what we started talking about in LifePoy. That's something 
as humble and mundane as a soap could give you a chance of your child falling ill a little less often. You know, we'll never eradicate the stomachache uh, in a small village in India. But if you give the mother and the father a chance that those small illnesses that kind of make peer parents go through sleepless nights, you know, we've all been parents. Mm-hmm. If you can give them a little chance that they'll be a bit lesser, I mean, that just increases the importance of something as mundane as a soap in their lives. So, yeah. And it's the truth of that brand, right? It's, it's, how, the it's, it's the what brand. the brand does. Exactly. So I always tell uh, people that, yeah, I've... Uh, I've been very successful in my career, in my marketing career, by laddering down. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Let's stay on purpose for a bit. You know, when we began the journey at PNG, which was largely inspired by Pampers way back in the mid 90s and it's just gotten better and better ever since. PNG's done a good bit of laddering down as well to use your phrase. It deeply affected how we taught brand sure. management and our philosophy of brands in the company. And sure. we are both you're at an you're at a company that believes in training and development. I came from a company that believes in training and development. So we take how we how we pass along our knowledge to different generations very seriously. How has this focus on purpose with a small p, mm-hmm. how has it affected how you train and develop your people in how to build brands? I, I think at the essence, what it does is it strips marketing of BS because it makes you focus on the absolute core essence of what you do. You know, which in, in some ways, not to kind of ascribe to our industry a nobler uh, uh, disposition than we are deserving of. But in some ways, great marketing is about sort of focusing on the ultimate truth in a manner that is still commercial. And I think uh, that sort of gets you to focus on what matters. So if I was to divide it into three things of what we focus on on the training, which is what is the functional truth? Because I think uh, uh, many times on many brands, uh, you know, we ignore that to our peril. Uh, uh, what does it mean to be superior to all other solutions when you are satisfying her need? Uh, what does it mean in terms of design? 
you know, the click of the cap, the wrinkle of the tube, that obsession with quality. And it's not how prestige or luxury brands talk about it because you don't have an unlimited amount of money. But it still is an obsession. I think the focus on the emotional truth, I feel in the talk of purpose, somehow the word emotion has gone missing. And that for me is still, uh, you know, it's it's about the life insight. Uh, uh, you know, when I, I'm very proud of the work that we've done on brands like Dove Deodorants uh, and, and sort of relating uh, sort of shaving of the underarms uh, to the role the brand plays, but also in the kind of freedom and confidence that you feel as a result. And it's when you have these two, the purpose is already inbuilt in it. And I think that's what like we have tried to train uh, our marketeers in, that you don't have to invent a layer. Purpose is inherent in the origins of the brand. And the third component, I would say, Jim, I don't know what your experience has been, that because we work with the cadence of life, as it is, which is live daily. And our brands have to perform every day, day after day for decades. That's how you earn this trust. You cannot do it if you are constantly sort of uh, imprisoned by process or uh, kind of uh, you work in an unpleasant environment. Like I always say happy marketeers make the best marketeers. And if that joy is missing, because people talk a lot of joy about saying joy to the consumer, but teams that don't have that joy and learn to associate with each other uh, in a way that creates joy, because finally we are we are creating stuff, whether it's a business, a PNL, or a brand uh, in FMCG, we are creating stuff every day, and that process of creation must be about joy. So for me, those three things are what we try to align our uh, you know because everything creativity, all the sort of modules of training, etc., sort of come out of those three. Samir, I love that. And, and obviously very similar in, in, in uh, approach to Proctor. Uh, I love your last point. In fact, just to put a, a, uh, an exclamation point on that one, mm-hmm. many years ago, our, our Consumer Insights Group at PNG did some very progressive research. And they found that consumers could basically, car- <laughs> they could tell when a team, when a brand is inspired and happy and productive by what the brand was sending forth in its packaging, mm. its in-store placement, its communication, uh, its product. And that was really profound for us to say, you know, if we don't have really engaged and happy teams, it's going to show up in the business. Exactly. You cannot divorce them. People see exactly. that even yeah. in consumer products. Of course, in a service exactly. business, you see it immediately. But so it was very very profound insight for us. And it changed a lot of how we thought about our teams, how we work, our purpose, how we recruit, how we onboard, everything. Yeah. And how we, I think, I don't know, I'd love to hear from you actually that, because I think, like you said, the the joy of innovation reflects in the innovation. And uh, uh, like, I don't know what your experiences were and how you built that, because that's something especially in the new org that I'm very, very keen to preserve and sort of recreate uh, because, you know, we now work a bit more remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people don't come into office as much. And, and this this job of ours is about co-creation. It's about really kind of 
living the smells and the touch and and just the camaraderie, the the back and yeah. forth. That's that's very important. And I think we have to be in person to do that. And yeah. if you look at Netflix, you look at Disney, you look at a lot of the highly respected agencies, they are coming together more frequently now for co-creation. Mm. I think there's a lot of work we can do remote. It's we're in a hybrid world, but when you're doing doing something where you're creating something new, solving problems in a fresh way, mm. the collaboration, the building on each other, the trust, it has to be in person. Yeah, it has to be. That's my that's my point of view. Hey, we're we're talking a lot about corporate purpose here, and I'd like to talk about personal purpose for a few moments mm. because as I was doing my homework for this, I came across yours, and I'm going to read it for our listeners. <laughs> Uh, your purpose is to build blockbuster businesses that challenge the status quo and help make a difference to society while being part of teams that spread joy, end quote. Could you talk to us a bit about the origin story of that personal purpose? A question I get almost every day is I'm struggling with the company's purpose and my personal purpose being in harmony. I hear that from a lot of leaders and I'm of the belief that you can always find the harmony. And if you can't, if you really can't, you probably ought to move on. So I'd I'd like you to talk a bit about the origin of that for you, how much you talk about it, how open you are about it and the role it's played in how you lead your teams. Uh, That's a good question. I think for, for me, I wrote that statement, I think sometime in 20, 12 when we had one of these first purpose workshops and I haven't changed a comma Mm. since then. Even today, it's, I would state it exactly in the same way. Uh, I think, I think the origin story is that, uh, like for most of us, it comes out of our childhood, right? Of, 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 uh, you know, uh, I had a very happy childhood, but I also had a big uh, uh, trauma when my father passed away, who I was very attached to when I was 13. And and, and uh, uh, my mother brought me up and, you know, she's probably the most inspiring person in my life. But I think through that, I, uh, you know, that aspiration to do something and to do it for my mom and sort of prove myself, you know, <laughs> that was, uh, uh, that I think was the origin of saying, I want to do things that kind of make a difference and that are big and counted because sometimes, you know, we put a lot of effort and then it it just goes away. And then that's fine. You know, sometimes that happens in life. So my purpose was to work on businesses, work on things, work on brands that kind of made a positive difference in society. But in the process of doing that, uh, you had joy because to me, the the journey was as important as the destination. And that's why actually I've been with Unilever for 25 years. Uh, uh, this is a organization more than any other that I've heard of where, you know, you have relationships with people that go beyond work. And therefore that is very important to me. And I think that I use the word blockbusters very often because frankly, in our line of work, I feel if you don't do something big, you might as well not do it because I think it's the small middling stuff that is very, very counterproductive that sucks energy that a lot of people put in effort, but finally it makes no difference. So I think I'm always a believer that even if you're working on a small brand, try and do big things on it. 
And uh, I also use the word blockbusters because I'm a huge uh, movie fan, both Hollywood and Bollywood. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wrote it in the way that it was most nearest to what, what I thought. But yeah, uh, for me, I think doing big stuff that makes a difference and having joy while doing it. Those are the three things in that purpose. We'll talk about movies later, but I want to stay on the personal purpose for a moment. Uh, how do you keep yourself true to it day in and day out? in the pressures of daily work and the rhythms of business. Do you have any advice, any rituals, any practices to be sure that you always wake up fresh and alive and ready to activate that purpose in new and interesting ways? <laughs> I'm the last person to give advice <laughs> on a healthy, wholesome lifestyle, so I won't even try. But I would start the reverse way in on my purpose to give one piece of advice, which is uh, mentioned in my WhatsApp status on my uh, phone, which says happiness every day. And, and I feel uh, in my life, it might not work for everyone, but uh, in my life, things have worked by not always trying to plot your future and trying to obsess about where you're going. Uh, I am a huge believer in being happy every day, in getting up happy and sleeping happy. And, and I literally mean that because I think like everyone, I can feel it in my bones when I'm sleeping and, uh, you know, there has been something in the day which is which has kind of disturbed me. And I don't like those days. So I try and minimize those days. And I think if I find that if you go uh, go about life with that attitude, but then do your work and your you know, family with, with passion and love. Good things happen to you. Samir, when are you happiest at work? What are the characteristics or the situations when you are happiest and also when you're not working? Uh, I think when I'm not working, it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but I'm happiest with my kids. Uh, they're 16 and 11. Uh, uh, increasingly... Uh, they are not the happiest when they're spending time with their, <laughs> because they have better things that. to do. <laughs> it gets better, by the way, when they get older. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I can't wait for that. Uh, though the 11-year-old, I can still bully a bit more. Uh, uh, and I have to say with my wife, uh, uh, in case she ever hears this. So, uh, I hope she but, does. Yeah, I hope she does. And I think it's, it's a bit similar. I'm happiest when I'm working uh, with my teams when I'm having meetings that are more unstructured, because I think we have so many time-bound, strictly agenda-grown meetings, and, you know, Amazon has taught us a way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the pre-reads, and, you know, that's most of our day. So what I try and do is that at, to an average of about three hours a day, uh, I don't have meetings. Uh, uh, I spend time with myself or I spend time with people uh, having a coffee, like when I go to office, which is almost three uh, to four days a week now, uh, I spend almost half my time with people, with my teams, just talking, shooting the breeze, talking brands. We're still talking business and brands, but it's uh, it's in an atmosphere which is not always uh, sort of agenda about. Of course, you need those structured meetings, mm -hmm. etc. But I get a lot of my energy uh, from sort of you know, being with people and talking to people and using that process to co-create, to get new ideas and to move forward. I feel I think best in that scenario. 
Well, Samir, as we are recording this, and the audience doesn't know this, but you're at an R&D center in the U.S., and, <laughs> yes. and your, your normal home is in Singapore. So you've just finished a day of being with people and talking about yes. ideas and so on. Yes. So what was it about how you spent your day at the R&D? And by the way, why is the CMO at the R&D center? I should have you talk about that first. And yes. what, what made you happy about this visit? Yeah. So this is a place that I love coming to. Uh, it's an R&D center in Unilever for many of our personal care businesses. And I'm the CMO for personal care. And I'm uh, sort of, you know, in charge of all the innovation that happens on all our brands. So, you know, this is the absolute right place to come to. And what I love about product and which is what our R&D colleagues do is that, you know, like in PNG, I'm sure product and marketing are fully, fully integrated more than any other mm -hmm. two functions, yep. you know. I used to come here almost every year, once a year. And this time I came here after four years because of COVID. Mm. And, uh, you know, the kind of uh, scientists we have and the depth that they have, Jim, uh, again, you would have seen this, right? Some of our scientists and people in our creative directors and our agencies have worked on our brands for far more than any marketeer has. So for me, that uh, engenders so much respect because, uh, you know, they know the ins and outs of the brands, what has worked, what has not worked. And then seeing technology uh, uh, move forward and sort of find a new way to satisfy consumers' needs and to delight people and to see, like today, uh, it was amazing how much of it was about oohs and ahs. Mm. Like, you know, there was a new clinical result, which was better than, uh, you know, one of our competitors. There was there was a new sort of uh, a piece of packaging that we couldn't believe, uh, you know, had come through. So it was it was really that. And then, of course, it's also a lot about challenging and seeing how can we satisfy some of the needs better, where we are kind of trailing or not doing as well. So it's a very, very dynamic day and it kind of sets the agenda for the next year. You've been the global CMO for personal care for about 10 months, I believe, yeah. after working in the category in multiple roles over your 25-year career. This is kind of a strength, maybe, and a challenge, right, to be elevated to this role in a category you've been so much a part of for many years. How did you come into this role, and how did you set your agenda I just find it very interesting. Very few people are promoted to CMO in a category they've been in for as long as you have been in. Yes. And what it has done is that I, for me, it is the perfect mix of continuity because I was leading one of the categories, not all the three. So I was leading skin cleansing, which is the biggest one, which has brands like Dove, Lux, Lifebuoy, Pears, etc., but what got added was deodorants and a bit earlier than that, oral care. So we have a small but mighty oral care business in Asia, which is made up of brands like Close Up and Pepsodent and, and in France and Italy. So that business got added, but the amazingly successful and strong deodorants business got added. So it's like half of those businesses are new. Half I had done for some time, uh, you know, in fact, for the last three or four years. But they've all come together in a sort of new construct of this compass organization, which, like I told you earlier, is really uh, seems to engender a lot more faster and more effective decision making. And I think that coming together is, is quite heady. 
what I've done is that each of there are about six or seven billion dollar brands and some of them are two, three billion dollars each. The CEOs of those brands report into me. So really, uh, the excitement in my role is that I'm the last line of defense on those brand equities and I get to see the sort of innovation and advertising that happens. But those brand heads are empowered uh, to work with the key countries to develop their. So one is on the brands. I think the second is the portfolio management, uh, you know, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, you're the world expert at it. But that is extremely exciting, uh, working with our key countries to see in this new personal care business uh, where to put the emphasis and sort of what portfolio to have. And I think third is culture, which is uh, uh, I'm responsible for creating whether a marketeer is working in a global team or a local team, uh, uh, you know, in the countries or uh, uh, in, in, in one of the brand teams. How do you create a culture where there is where a culture of joy, a culture of creation, a culture of risk taking, of experimentation, of really embedding our brands into culture? which is really one of the things that we need to do much more effectively. But yeah, I think if I could describe one thing overall else, I love working, you know, we call them core brands, but uh, there might be other terms that other companies use. But these, we have about seven core brands. And those are like sort of more than 90% of our business and frankly, more than 100% of our growth. And working on them and sustaining them is sexy and exciting because I think when people look at it from outside, they find a lot of excitement in these sort of new startup brands. And believe me, I've done those. I've launched 10 new brands over the last uh, three or four years, and I'm an angel investor into some of these brands. But I would any day give my left hand to work on a brand like Dove or Lifeboy or Rexona or Axe or Close Up or Pepsodent or Lux because the way you renew them and the way you create value and meaning for a consumer uh, is challenging and exciting. Uh, and the way you keep sort of new competitors at bay and the way you do everything with embedding more purpose and sustainability into them, that, that for me is really the fun of the job. We had this challenge at P&G too. The big brands were at one time were not seen as the sexy jobs. And we flipped that script. Mm. And and they became the sexy jobs, but we also had to bring the same values of, of a startup to them: experimentation, exactly. trial, uh, smart risk taking, investing in the culture. And so, exactly. I, and I think when you marry that with the scale and the reach and the impact of these brands, very special things can happen. They're unstoppable. Yeah. And and you know why? Just we've talked of our two companies, but look at KitKat, look at Coca Cola, yeah, right. Look at Nike, yeah. look at, you know, so for me, it's exactly what you said. You know, you bring that culture of experimentation, excitement, even the culture of joy and sort of creation of challenge of pushing yourself hard. And you don't define your job as I have to maintain this brand, you know, hey, I've got a hundred year old equity. I have to maintain it because that is the start of the decline. You yeah. have to constantly recruit newly. You have to constantly recruit young people or Gen Z or whatever we call mm -hmm. them, because if that's not happening, this brand won't survive. Samir, how have your KPIs changed in this role? I think uh, 
a lot of the KPIs stay the same. Like uh, we measure our brand equities through brand power and, and that hasn't changed. That's still the essence of how we define. Uh, but in this new role, global media reports into me. And I think the opportunity to embed our brands into culture, uh, into places like TikTok, into sort of more global events, uh, that has changed because I think that we can do a much better job. Uh, and, you know, our personal care brands, frankly, are much, much bigger in the consumer's mind mm. than they are in culture, yeah. right? Which is a bit different from some other brands that have a higher profile in Khan or whatever. Uh, and I think that's something that I'd like to change. So I think that's one big KPI that has changed. And I think, uh, uh, frankly, our industry is being driven by premiumization. And uh, while we have done a great job in the core, driving premiumization harder, bigger, better, faster, those are two I can think of, which are much higher on the priority list. What's the best part so far of being the CMO of this vast personal care portfolio at Unilever? Many things, but the first thing that comes to mind is the diversity of talent that I meet. Because I'm very lucky in having some of uh, our biggest and leading markets as part of my team, but I also base my teams in London, in New York, in Mumbai, in Singapore, in Dubai, in uh, in Buenos Aires. And I think just the diversity of talent that I met and increasingly our marketeers are, are sort of young people who are uh, in the culture of the place. Uh, that that has been the biggest uh, learning experience for me. What's the most challenging part of this new expanded role? I think it's the travel. Uh, I mean, that really, really gets to me. Uh, uh, but what I've seen in the post-COVID world, if you don't travel enough to the markets and get enough face time, then, you know, that will impact your work. So it's like it's become a necessary evil, but I think that time away for family and like this time I have to spend even the weekend away, uh, uh, that really hurts, I have to say. I want to go back to your career path for a moment. By my count, you have had about 12 different roles in your 25-year career at Unilever. But it seems like the defining role has been your time on Lifebuoy. You've already talked about that numerous times in our chat today, and I knew you would. I know you've told the story a million times, but I would like you to reflect right now how this experience has shaped your view of brand building and your philosophy of brand building and your view of team building and your philosophy of team building. When I came into Lifebuoy, the, the condition that I found and addressing that was, I think that really shaped how since then I look at jobs about you know, the business you have to turn around or what you find. And I think this thing of the first 90 days of humble, respectful listening, which I so often find when new leaders come in, they come in with uh, uh, sort of biases from their previous job uh, and they don't listen. They don't listen enough to diverse stakeholders. And I think I was able to do that well. And then, of course, the, your best ideas come in the first 90 days and you have to just shut up long enough to make sure that, you know, you you pick the right ones because there's so many. And I think on on Lifebuoy, again, it was returning to the small P, you know, the, the essence of what the brand was about 
and it's been taken away, like I said, into sort of these higher order children are healthy kind of stuff and have no fear of, of getting dirty. And every mother was saying, no, I do have a fear when my child goes <laughs> out and plays in the garbage. Uh, and I think what we were able to do on LifePoy, which is, you know, the insight I talked about saying, uh, how do you prevent children from falling ill a little less often in the role a soap plays? And then take it into every touch point of the brand. Because I think that's, again, a trick that people miss. So we created something called the LifePoy Infection Alert System, which was every moment of hygiene anxiety in a DNA country in, in places like India, Indonesia, Africa, LifePoy, we made a, a communication and an innovation that was tailored to that. And that just, you know, if you remember the roti uh, advertising at the Kum mm -hmm. Mela where we, we printed LifePoy on the world's biggest uh, uh, fair that happens and millions of people before they were eating their chapati or roti with their hands, the roti had, did you wash with LifePoy? And then they went and washed their hands. So we did many, many campaigns like that, uh, including the father walking on his hands, the Gundappa campaign, which was called the Help a Child Reach 5 campaign, which, by the way, the, the brief for that was like, I was almost angry because, you know, uh, there were 2 million people, uh, 2 million kids who die of diarrhea and pneumonia under the age of five, 2 million. And we'd been, you know, advocating about it. We've been talking about it, hand washing. We went to the UN. No one listened to us. And I, and I the the insight I gave to Lowe, uh, uh the brief to Balki, who used to head Lowe, was I said, look, if you keep telling the story of 2 million children, no one will listen. But if you tell the story of one child, people will listen. And I gave him a very shocking brief, which, of course, he turned upside down. And that was uh, the rest is history. But the shocking brief that I gave was I said, for the first time, I want to maybe show a child dying in a piece of advertising or a piece in a campaign because I want to shock people out. And the way he came back with it after five days was that I won't show it. Uh, you know, the, there was a creative director called Sagar and another guy called Amir. They came back with an idea which said, we will show a child living till five. So it's a father walking on his hands till the temple and this journalist following him saying, why is he doing that? And then he says, I'm doing that because, you know, it's my first kid who has survived beyond five. And it's just there we announced that LifePoy has, has adopted a village called Thesgora, which has the maximum incidence of diarrhea and pneumonia in the world. And then we adopted that village, uh, Jim, for the next three years. And we just did hand washing. There was no other intervention. And not a single child died in the next three years. So those were some, and, and that film was actually shown to uh, Obama. Uh, like it just made us absolutely famous. I can't tell you the amount of funds we got from governments and NGOs to fund our hand washing program because they had seen that film and they, they realized that we had a behavior, we ran the world's largest behavior change program. And I think we contacted more than a billion people uh, to change their hand washing behaviors. But I think it was just this kind of, returning it to its essence, putting it at every touch point, and then being ruthlessly consistent. That's why I get very emotional talking about these yeah. core brands, because behind all the sort of seeming simplicity of it, there is a, uh, you know, there is a story. It's a beautiful, small P purpose story. Could you speak, you don't have to share the specific numbers, but just give us an idea of the impact this has had on the business. 
this uh, oh. getting back to the simple truth of the brand and bringing it to life in so many creative, high impact ways. Tremendous. Uh, uh, we've grown double digit Kager over the last 12 years. We ended up becoming the world's largest antibacterial hygiene soap. Uh, a lot of gains in market share, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of business, it's been absolutely amazing. But it, we've also kind of upgraded the business. So it's not like we didn't do all the other stuff because there was also a big movement happening to body wash and liquids from bars. Uh, and we were able to do that. I want to shift to the creative brief. And I, my first question has to be the most influential movie in your life. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> I could go on. I could go on forever. Um, so I have my top six or seven, which I can never choose. So I, let me quickly list that. Okay. So it's it's The Godfather. It's Some Like It Hot. It's Dirty Harry. Uh, you know, don't ask yep. me why it's no, it's yeah. embedded deep into my childhood or why I can't get over Clint Eastwood. Uh, it's an Indian movie called Shole. Uh, there is a Satyajit Ray Bengali movie called Pather Panchali, which is the song of the little road. And if I was to pick one gym, it would be that. If you ever get the chance and you have the patience to see a black and white movie made in the 50s, he was very influenced by these Italian neorealist directors, you know, like Vittoria De Sica, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the name Satyajit Ray, but he's probably India's greatest film director. But he was not Bollywood. He was a Bengali right. film director. And I love art, movies, books, in which there is no plot, in which nothing much happens because I love the sort of cadence of life. But it's very difficult to capture it in a movie, right? Because you're all looking for narrative. And this is about a boy and his sister, a small boy and his sister growing up in a poor Bengali village in the middle of famine. They don't have to eat. It's the most joyous movie you will ever see because it's just about them discovering life in this village. That for me is my favorite movie. But when people ask me to describe it, I'm like, nothing happens. These two children, they just, you know, they grow up. <laughs> not not the best way to advertise the movie, <laughs> but yeah. You got me interested. I'll, I'll watch it with my wife. Samir, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you growing up? I would, I would have to say Cadbury's. Like, again, that comes top of my mind. Uh, and paradoxically, and I'm and I'm not doing this deliberately, but paradoxically, because now when I analyze it in hindsight, it's about happiness. It's about joy. And it's not just Cadbury's, it's Cadbury's Dairy Milk. I don't know if that uh, thing is still available in the US uh, uh, or if it's a, it's a mm -hmm. more British Indian thing, but uh, there, there, there is... The, Obviously, the taste, the texture, the way it melts in the mouth. And in, in those days in India, you had one chocolate bar and it was Cadbury's and it was dairy milk. And then, of course, they did a thousand other variants. But what is what is amazing is that even my kids now, they're 11 and 16 and have the choice of a million brands and, you know, are cynical about most things. Uh, sure. When I go to London, because you don't get it in Singapore, when I go to London or India, they will always say, my son especially, get me the Cadbury's dairy milk, the original one, because they don't like all the variants that they have done. Because I think that brand and that product has cracked that sweet spot of everyday joy. So what's your most admired P&G brand and why? <laughs> 
We have Unilever brands in our cabinet, by the way. So I'm not, I'm just being honest about that. <laughs> My wife's a Dove user, by the way, even though P- many years of P&G and still lots of P&G stock, she loves Dove. I think I've gradually stopped using P- P&G brands <laughs> in my life. So that might be one. That's a fair answer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that might be one reason. But uh, I don't know how that brand is doing now, but I always admired Head & Shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Consistent. I think because of its, of its fierce discipline yeah. about how it kept itself relevant uh, and topical and kind of uh, even in culture. Uh, in a market that was always moving away from dandruff. Uh, you know, so that that I found very interesting. Most influential mentor in your career? Oh, there have been many, uh, uh, right from, uh, you know, uh, a person called Vivek Rampal to Amit Chopra, who were my first two, who really helped me mentor uh, people like Fabian Garcia, like Alan Jop. Uh, Alan, I worked with very closely. Uh, uh, I think Dave Lewis, uh, who was my boss for two or three years, who then went to Tesco and now is chairman of Hallion, was uh, one of those businessmen and marketeers who had an amazing mix of uh, values and uh, marketing instinct uh, and business uh, uh, acumen. You know, I've never seen that. Uh, so therefore, he could relate to you at a very emotional, uh, fundamental level and, and and yet kind of talk brands and businesses. And I think uh, he, along with those other names I mentioned, influenced me most. I, I usually end with this question. Who's been the most inspirational person in your life? You answered this earlier as your mom. Yeah. But I'd, yeah. I'd love you to give another chance to speak about that and her impact on you. My mom, for the reasons I mentioned that, uh, you know, after my father died, she really kind of, she didn't sacrifice. She was never a tragic figure. Actually, she was a PhD and she went on to become a professor, had a full life. But she really kind of made sure that I left home. But if I was to pick, uh, because I love giving this answer, if I was to pick someone not living, uh, and I'm, uh, I apologize that both the answers might sound very cliched, but I really believe in them. It would be Mahatma Gandhi, uh, uh, you know, because I really, I don't practice any of his teachings. I'm not at all disciplined. Uh, but I think what he did for India and the world ensured that, you know, nonviolence can defeat an empire. I think that is the biggest lesson that we have for the future. And if if those ideals could even be practiced 10% like they were with Mandela, etc., uh, the world would be an amazing place. And uh, and certainly the world is not going in that direction, unfortunately. And the person I most admire living, and and, and again, that's just, uh, I'm sorry to give you a cliched answer, is Obama. Because I just felt his presidency and his post-presidency, because we know how important the post-presidency mm-hmm. is, yeah. is really an example to everyone, all of us, at whatever you know small level we operate, of grace under pressure. I'm a huge believer uh, in sort of grace, uh, which which I think he displayed in every aspect of his life. That's a beautiful place to stop, Samir, this wonderful conversation. It just felt like we were having a cup of coffee together, you know? Yes, I, I <laughs> yeah. have to say you're a, you're a brilliant interviewer, conversationalist, and I feel humbled 
that you were so interested in my life. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say that uh, that itself was like, uh, it was an absolute pleasure to talk. And thank you. Thank you for taking out the time. That was my conversation with Samir Singh. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. And the first one, purpose with a small P. This was a beautiful discussion about how to think about purpose on a business, how to bring it to life, and how to ensure it stays true to the truth of the product and the category. This was a masterclass in bringing purpose to life in a business. Second takeaway, the power of a strong personal purpose. Samir has an explicit purpose. He wrote it about 11 or 12 years ago. It guides his thinking, it guides his behavior, it guides how he spends his time. He's a big believer in happiness, happy teams, deliver successful and happy brands, and he's very disciplined in how he spends his time based on that personal purpose. And the last takeaway, listening and curiosity. We hear that a lot in this show. When I asked Samir about the most influential brand in his career, and that was Lifebuoy, and why it was so influential for him. The first thing he said was, it all happened in the first 90 days. I went in, I was curious, I listened, and out of that listening came the strategy that has built Lifebuoy into one of the most admired, purpose-driven brands in the world. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.